touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and today we're going to have a listener mail jubilee because I've been receiving lots of mail from you guys and I wanted to thank you for that, first of all, because I love hearing from my listeners and it gives me some direction about where to go. I, sometimes you guys are asking for stuff that we've covered on previous episodes, but that always gives me the chance to update those episodes. And sometimes you ask for stuff that I honestly never would have thought about on my own, and it really helps when I'm putting the show together. Now, in this case, we've got a few different listener mail messages, none of which really warrant a full-length episode all by themselves. Uh, some can be answered more quickly than others. So I thought I would group them together as another listener mail grab bag and address them and thank the people who wrote in. So first we have Chris, who said uh, this was all about uh, 3D printing. And when they talked about the possibility of uh, of stores having 3D printers to produce on demand as opposed to having warehouses full of inventory, Chris says, there's a store that opened up in my area that the guy wants to be the first Kinko's-like storefront for 3D printing. He doesn't plan on this being the primary role of the business to start out because the b- demand is not there uh, right yet, but he wants to work with inventors, designers, and mostly work with people and schools to teach people about the technology. Now, Chris did not mention uh, the name of this particular business. Uh, but I'm going to take a wild guess, and I could be wrong. Chris, please write in and tell me if I'm completely off track here. But I'm guessing that it might be Thingsmiths in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Thingsmiths is a pretty cool uh, organization. I looked into it online. I'm also hoping to to at some point interview someone from Thingsmiths to talk more about what they do and how they they conduct business, because I think it'd be really interesting to look at something that is often referred to as an incredibly disruptive technology, disruptive to the manufacturing industry in particular. So Thingsmiths is a shop that offers up 3D printing to customers for a set price per cubic centimeter. And it depends upon what type of material and which process you want to use. So your choices are ABS, PLA, PET, nylon, uh, or, uh, and those are all using fused deposition modeling, or methacrylate plastic through stereolithography. All right, so now you're like, well, I don't know what that means necessarily. So fused deposition modeling is what your typical 3D printer on the market does. So if you've ever seen one of these, you, you're pretty familiar. But just in case you haven't, what you have is an extruder, which ends up heating up some sort of material, uh, typically some kind of plastic, to a level where it is uh, moldable and and you can actually extrude it. It's There are extruders that print out tiny, thin layers of this stuff, uh, almost like a glue gun. If you've ever used a glue gun, it's kind of like that, but much smaller and more precise. Um, the level of precision depends upon the type of 3D printer you're using. And what it does is it lays down layer after layer of this stuff, fusing each new layer to the layers below it. And often there's some sort of uh, chemical within the plastic itself that allows you to do this fusing. 
Um, typically, you want it to cool down so that it really solidifies in the final shape that you had intended. And uh, it, you know, it's very important for this fusing and, and hardening process to go smoothly or else the material, the, the object would collapse in on itself and you would just end up with a lumpy, gooey mess. Now, we've used 3D printers here at the office and they, they use this particular method, the fused depo- deposition modeling. And it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, you have to be a little, you know, depending on the model, you have to be a little uh, tricksy with it. We've had some where the plastic was sticking to the the platform, the printing platform, and that was a problem because uh, instead of it uh, flowing properly when it would get to a point, uh, it would start to peel off or slide instead of sticking the right way. Uh, and you would end up with a deformed plastic monstrosity as opposed to that nice whistle you wanted to print out. But that's one method. The other one, stereolithography, is t- entirely different. And it's super awesome. It's still additive manufacturing. Additive meaning that you are building this thing piece by piece as opposed to carving away stuff to get at what you want. That would be subtractive. So in other words, sculpting is subtractive. But this is additive, where you're you're adding material until you have built the thing you want. Uh, Stereolithography builds in a layer-by-layer basis uh, that uses a laser to change the nature of material to make it harden. So you have a liquid material, some sort of liquid plastic, for example. And imagine that you've got it in a vat. So you've got this vat of liquid material... Uh, you have submerged just under the surface of this liquid plastic a porous um, platform. So think of it like a, a like a grill almost. It's it's like that, but very narrow uh, gaps between the bars. It allows the plastic to come up through those bars, and it's just submerged just under the surface of that liquid plastic. On top of this vat, you have a device that is able to direct a laser, an ultraviolet laser, let's say, uh, at this liquid material, which has this photoreactive nature to it, so that when it's hit by this ultraviolet laser, the liquid plastic hardens into a solid. So by tracing the shape that you want to print on this liquid plastic that's on top of this platform, it turns that liquid into solid and you have your first layer of whatever it is you're planning on building. To build again, the platform goes down just a little bit so that the hardened surface is now submerged just under the surface of that liquid plastic. And you do it again. The laser traces and the the liquid plastic on top of the hard plastic hardens and fuses together with the layer below it. And you do this over and over again. So that platform very slowly descends as the laser traces and hardens this liquid plastic. And it allows for much greater precision than the fused deposition modeling. You can get to um, a pretty decent resolution. Now, resolution in 3D printers is really what we talk about when you want to avoid those jagged edges. So it's pretty awesome. And uh, Thingsmiths uses both methods. And depending upon which method you want, the price is going to vary. Also, depending on, again, which material you're using uh, and its price per cubic centimeter. So uh, that is, I think, pretty awesome. The company also offers 3D scanning and design services. So you could 
bring something in to scan and have them print a copy of that thing. Uh, theoretically, you could scan yourself and have a figurine of yourself printed up. Or if you had an idea for something, but you didn't have anything to scan and you didn't have the capability of designing it yourself, you could hire them to do that for you, which is pretty awesome. Now, Chris, why don't you write me back? Let me know if I have the the same business that you had in mind or if there was something else. Remember that address, techstuff at howstuffworks.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, either way, I really hope I can speak with someone from Thingsmith's in a future episode, just to kind of talk more about the business model and and really what the future is for 3D printing in this kind of way. All right, our next message comes from Thelonious. Now, Thelonious says, Dear Mr. Strickland, oh, it's so formal. I have been a listener to tech stuff and forward thinking for many years. I recently downloaded an iPod full of back episodes of those casts to listen to on extended bus trip. But about the fourth or fifth day, something struck me that I wanted to ask you about. Does it always have to be a form factor and not just a form? And did the word shape do something nasty to you as a small child? Just wondering, Thelonious. Touché, Thelonious. Um, why do I use the term form factor so much instead of just form or shape? Well, for one thing, form factor in computers means a little bit more than just the physical form or shape. There's a little bit extra implied with that particular term. Uh, form factor refers to how these things are shaped, plus how the shape affects and are affected by the use of that device. So in other words, the form factor of a desktop is different from a laptop, and the use of those two things changes as a result. The form factor of a smartphone is such that you have to build that in to your design of apps for that smartphone. You know that you have a limited amount of screen space that you can use. You know that the inputs are limited. You know that the battery life is limited because of the form factor, the, the, all the things that go into making that particular type of device work the way it does. So it's a little bit more than just form or shape, and it's an industry standard. That being said, I probably could vary my vocabulary a little bit and not make you guys go crazy and create the tech stuff drinking game where words like convergence and form factor and disruptive all become means to, you know, take a another shot of your favorite frosty beverage. Um, at any rate, uh, thank you very much, Thelonious. But yes, form factor is a little more specific than either form or shape in the, in the context of computers and electronics, which is why I use it so frequently. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. You know, if you have a lot of mailing and shipping needs, it can be a huge hassle to go through the normal channels, right? I mean, like going to the post office, 
you could end up standing in line for what seems like an eternity. And if you lease a postage meter, well, that might save you time, but it's not going to save you money. They're expensive. You have to enter a multi-year commitment. And then there are all these hidden fees that always seem to pop up. But there is a better way, and that is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and your own printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter, and it's just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid those long lines at the post office. I use Stamps.com all the time in order to send off packages and letters and other types of mail. It's incredibly simple, and I have a digital scale that I can just plug into my computer. It tells me exactly how much postage I need to use, so I don't have to use any guesswork or put too much postage or not enough postage on anything. I always know exactly what I need. It's fantastic. Right now, you can use my promo code TechStuff for this special offer. It is a no-risk trial. You get $110 in bonuses. That includes a digital scale like the one I was talking about and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Tech Stuff. All right, our next one comes from Chase from Washington State, who says, Hello, I was listening to your episode recently with Listener Mail. Hey, it's another one of those. I haven't listened to the most recent episode, so forgive me if you've already addressed this. You were talking about the programming of a car as to how it would choose to act in either going on a sidewalk or bracing for impact. This is the trolley problem we were talking about. If cars are able to communicate with each other, wouldn't it be possible for your car to basically warn other cars that it was going to have to slam on its brakes and also allow them to do the same as to avoid either a hard impact or a crash altogether? Just a thought I had and figured I would pose that idea to the problem. Thanks for all the amazing episodes. You guys really make my long nights at work more bearable. Well, thank you, Chase. So what Chase proposes here is fantastic. I mean, it is kind of a solution to the trolley problem. In all but the most extreme cases, this sort of communication would very often prevent these accidents from ever happening. In fact, we might prevent them to the point where you wouldn't even be aware that such an accident was even possible. That's the ideal. That, however, is a few years away. In the meantime, we have a world in which we've got a lot of manually driven cars. In fact, nearly all of them are manually driven. There are very few autonomous cars out there. But we have all these manually driven cars, and many of them are different. You know, we've got all these different years and models and makes out there on the road. Some of them predate all the cool systems that have been hitting, you know, standard cars for the last few years. So stuff that you might find standard today, like things like lane assist or, or even, um, you know, parking assist, that kind of stuff that's starting to become more and more common in cars just a few years ago was completely unheard of or was only found in the most high luxury vehicles out there. 
So with that in mind, we get to a point where we have this autonomous car that is going to encounter an oncoming car. The the scenario, in case you forgot, was that let's say you've got an autonomous car. You are sitting in an autonomous car and there's an oncoming car that's veering into your lane. And the autonomous car really only has two options. One option will result in the autonomous car getting into an accident where you could potentially be hurt, you the passenger. The other option has the autonomous car behaving in such a way that somebody else is going to be put into danger. They're going to be injured. And those are the only two options. What, what do you, or what does the, the designer of the autonomous car, what do they build into the car to make that decision? Knowing that one of the two options has to happen. There's no third option. And that, that's the philosophical problem. That's still going to be a problem for a while simply because we're not going to reach a point where spontaneously everyone has a vehicle capable of communicating with other vehicles. One day, hopefully, we will reach that, whether the car is autonomously controlled or manually controlled, so that there is a better understanding on an electronic level of what is going on so that we can have safety features built in to prevent these kind of accidents from happening. And while this is all kind of a thought exercise in the short term, it does have actual real-world implications. There are real-world engineers working on this kind of problem and trying to determine what's the best way to cause the least amount of harm in these extreme circumstances. Knowing that under regular operating conditions, an autonomous car is likely always going to be more safe than a manually driven car. Keeping in mind things like the the, the Google car story about how uh, in the entire history of the autonomous cars that Google has been running, there have only been a couple of accidents, and they've all been due to human drivers, not the autonomous driver. So maybe Chase in the future will get to a point where cars, whether they're autonomously controlled or manually controlled, are communicating with one another well in advance so that these kinds of situations can be headed off uh, before they become dangerous. That would be wonderful. I hope that that's the future that we see. Uh, I expect that we will get there. Uh, I just don't know what the timeline is yet, but I'm hoping sooner rather than later. And of course, it will all depend upon the rate at which older cars are removed from the roads and newer cars are replacing them. Even if that never reaches a point where, you know, we don't have a mandate, let's say let's say that we never pass a law that says you have to have a car from X year or later or you have to convert your vehicle to have these systems in it or else you can't drive it. Let's say that never happens. Even if that never happens, we just have to have enough cars with these systems to really make a huge difference in in uh, passenger and pedestrian safety. We've seen some studies that have suggested that as few as 20% of vehicles would need these in order to make massive changes to everything from traffic jams to, uh, again, passenger and pedestrian safety. So that's really encouraging to know that we don't have to have a world where everybody's in one of these vehicles. We just have to have enough of them to make a difference. Moving on. This next request came from Twitter. This is from Jerry, who says... Uh, podcast episode idea was wondering if you could explain what goes on during the sound of a dial up modem. Yes, that. Well, Jerry, just in case our younger listeners have not experienced this or have heard it and not known what it is, 
Let's first hear the sound of a dial-up modem connecting. Beautiful, isn't it? Just really brings a tear to your eye. So that sound, uh, if you are not familiar with it, it probably sounds horrific. But for most of us, that was the sound, not for most of us, for the older set of us, that was the sound of connecting to the Internet. Specifically, not even just the Internet. That was the sound of one computer connecting to another computer using dial-up modems. So dial-up modems use the telephone lines in order to make data connections. So we were making we were making use of the existing infrastructure to do something new. Instead of it being voice communication, now it's specifically computer data communication. And that sound is essentially a handshake. It's just not the type you would do with your hands. It's a modem handshake between two modems. And that's what facilitated the communication between one computer and another computer. So here's what's going on. If you listen to that noise, you're going to hear a series of sounds. And this is the order of those sounds and what they mean. So the first Early tones, once you get past the dial tone and the dialing, which was typical for any telephone call, not just dial-up modems, uh, the earliest tones establish the modem speeds of the two modems in question. So modems come at different speeds. Um, dial-up modems come at different speeds. And you can only really transmit data as quickly as the slowest modem. You can't go any faster than the slowest one. Kind of like... Uh, if you've got a slow car moving down a one-lane road, it doesn't matter how fast the vehicle is behind it, it's limited by the car that's in front of it. So let's say that you're using a, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a bleeding-edge adopter back in the day, and you've got a 9600 baud modem, and most folks are still using a 2400 baud modem. You would be stuck at a slower speed whenever acting, you know, communicating with a slower modem. Uh, by the way, in case you're wondering, a 2400 baud modem would transmit a blistering 2.4 kilobits per second. 9600 would be 9.6 kilobits per second. So that's, uh, that's incredibly low data transfer speeds compared to what we see today. Uh, it's why whenever you hear people talk about the old dial-up modem days, you would, you know, try and view a picture that someone had pasted online and you would just start the, the process of getting the picture and then you would walk away from your computer for like 45 minutes and come back to see if it was done yet. And it's because we're talking about super slow data transmission speeds or data rate transfers, I guess I should, I should say. Now, the next series of tones you would hear represents the SYNAC handshake, which sets up other parameters that guide the interaction like parity. Uh, so parity is meant to make sure that communication is proceeding without errors. This parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, not parody, which is hilarious. So essentially, uh, parity helps modems guarantee that they are actually sending and receiving the information properly. It's it's a means of making certain that communication is not being uh, dropped in any way, because otherwise you would just be getting lots of corrupt files and errors and problems like that. The next series of sounds you would hear is when the modems would go through what is called rate negotiation, which is the actual speed of communication that will take place, as opposed to whatever the maximum possible speed is between the two modems. This would be 
the actual communication speed. The next series of sounds is a point in which the modems are preparing for simultaneous communication with each other. So we're finally getting to the point where they can really have this exchange of information going on at the same time. After that, the sound indicates that there is a connection that has been accepted and the two modems are in communication. And the final little noise that you hear before the modem goes to silent represents data actually moving between those two modems. So there you go. There's the demystification of that modem dial-up sound. It's really just the establishment of a connection and the, uh, you know, making sure that everything is working properly before you start trying to send files or, or, uh, ask for files or any other kind of computer to computer communication through a dial-up access point. So there you go. I hope that that answers your question. It was fun to look at. And that wraps up our listener mail jubilee. I want to thank all the listeners who sent in listener mail. There's tons more where that came from, so I, I'm sure I will do more episodes like this. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, please send them to me, whether it's something that could be a full episode all on its own or something like this where I take a few different questions and then just kind of make a, a grab bag episode. I like doing both. So let me know what you want and I will make episodes. Send me that email though. I need to know what you think first. So it could be a full episode. Maybe it's an interview. Maybe there's a guest host that you really want to have back on the show. Send me that message. The email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 